Hey, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and outside with friends. My name's Noah. <laughs> you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey. I make 12-tone. And today we're continuing our whirlwind tour of all of Nebula's Alex's. Do you want to introduce yourself? I am Alex. I run The Lospe Gamer, where I have um, maybe unhealthy fascination with entry-level and weaker computers, both modern and classic. Cool. For these, we tend to ask you to like bring a topic. So what are we talking about? I wanted to take the opportunity to chat a little bit in general about some of the idiosyncrasies of game music. I know, very on brand, but yeah, also shocking. very <laughs> shockingly, yeah. yeah. But also because they're in the last, I don't know, maybe five years or so, there has been um, an evolution in a certain direction for gaming music that I think is both interesting to discuss, um, both interesting to see some outside perspective, because I'm one of those losers that maybe listens to way too many video game soundtracks <laughs> and, and that... Mike made me have sort of a bias or a perspective that might be incomplete. And I don't, I'm not even sure how a lot of these things are perceived from the outside. So to introduce sort of what I, what I mean by that, or maybe I, I should ask first, like, what are both your experiences regarding gaming? Like, wh where do you stand of it as a sort of form of entertainment or art? So I'm a I'm a pretty casual gamer. Like I fully believe that games are art, or at least some games are art. I believe that they're a really exciting medium. I just don't play them very often because they seem to take up a lot of time, which is something that I don't have. <laughs> But yeah, I, I would call myself a casual gamer, or maybe even slightly above casual. Like I own an old Xbox and a Nintendo Switch, and I play a couple games on Steam and stuff. Most of my knowledge of games, though, comes from... I have a lot of friends that are very into games and a lot of peers that are very into games. I think it's interesting because I think I increasingly know a lot of people who significant amounts of their music listening is video game music. Yeah, for me, I, I, I tend to be, like at least a couple years behind on things. Like, I, I do play games, but I tend to sort of play one at a time. Uh, I've recently been getting into CrossCode, and, like, I, I played, like, Hollow Knight, like, two years after it came out. Same with, like, Celeste, and those sorts of, not indie as in really high-level indie stuff, like, the, the stuff that gets high-level acclaim, but is mostly by independent studios, like Hades as well, those sorts of things. I don't play... I really don't think I've played like a AAA game. God, it's probably since the last time I played through the Jack trilogy. So, which would be like you're not missing much. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 one of the things I'm sort of I'm really curious what the sort of the evolution you're talking about is because I really haven't played that many games from the last five to six years. But like some of the ones I have played again, like I mentioned, Hollow Knight, Hades, Celeste, have amazing like soundtracks have some of my favorite game music I've ever heard and really lush, interesting soundscapes that, and I'm like, again, I'm curious sort of what your experience, and someone who plays a lot more games than I do and plays a lot more breadth of games than I do, what you're thinking in terms of where that's been developing. So the initially sort of the, the story of gaming music as a medium started with very harsh hardware limitations that they yeah. have to work around and they still made a lot of interesting and still 
pretty listenable and pretty classic stuff based on that. Just taking influences where they could, but trying to simplify them to the point that it would work. But as technology advanced, they sort of games started looking towards movies as a, as a sort of inspiration in where they will take their soundscapes and trying to give the idea that you're sort of a hero in a movie and that sort of feel, but in an interactive way. Um, yeah. how, and I think around that time is when a lot of what people consider sort of the classic game tunes uh, that you always see in, in YouTube playlists or whatever uh, sort of started. This would be like the PS2 era or PlayStation? Yeah, I, I'm thinking a, a sort of, yeah, usually PlayStation 2 era. Yeah, because I'm thinking Final Fantasy X when you talk about like music that makes me feel like I'm a hero in a movie. Yeah, exactly. Because that you you could definitely trace a very clear line of yeah. how they were taking their inspiration from mostly Hollywood. But something fascinating that started that there were some early experiments on this, even as far as like the Nintendo sixty four era. But that as time and tools for music in games have improved, has become more and more the norm, and has made sort of a bit of an exception. There is uh, how well how to call it interactive music yes, in the sense yeah. that. Before you will have a, a music composer will make, okay, this is the music for this level or this scenario or this boss fight. But now technologically it's very easy, not very easy, but their tools are there to create music. So it shifts in a way that you didn't even notice the way it shifted when you are yeah. winning the boss fight on when you are getting your ass kicked on when very specific types of moods are happening to the point that when you check, I think maybe one of the best examples of this is the modern Doom games. So Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal. When you look at sort of the behind the scenes material on the music system that they coded and built so the game will seamlessly change between things depending on sort of the weapon that you're using or if you're how well you're doing. And you don't notice this until like you record yourself and then you look back on it and you go like whoa, what the? Like it, <laughs> it works so well that you're just completely immersed in the situation and the music is following what you're doing. To the point that you don't really stop to think like, wow, someone coded a system for this to actually work and work so well that you forget that that's there. Yeah. That that's the best praise that you can give <laughs> a system like that. You're talking about how they coded the system and that's really fascinating. But to me, it's also they composed a piece of music that worked like that. Exactly. That's what I was thinking too. You have to have this, like 8-Bit Music Theory has a great video about this in Pikmin, uh, about how mm -hmm. you have like this one level track that plays, but every time you get into a fight, it sort of adds new instruments that make it feel more intense or changes the harmony or whatever and fades in these tracks in and out to sort of put you in different musical environments depending on the gameplay environment. And that's really hard to do from a composition perspective as well as a technological perspective. Yeah, Hades, which is uh, an indie game you mentioned, does yeah. this and does this very yeah. well. Yeah, Hades is actually one of the like few recent games that I'm up with. And I, I love Hades and was just absolutely floored by the soundtrack. Over 200 <laughs> hours on Hades. So yeah, fantastic soundtrack on that game. So one, uh, the, the challenge that has sort of fascinated me in, in this sort of new direction of evolution in games is that um, if you have a movie, and you make a motion picture soundtrack and you sell it yeah. to people and you're looking at Spotify, like you, you can listen to it and you remember the scenes and sort of everyone gets, it's it's so linearly tight that everyone sort of gets the same experience. Yeah. But now with video games, when sort of 
a, a game original soundtrack comes out and they put it on, and the publisher puts it on Spotify or something, it gets extraordinarily tricky because you no, you're not really putting the soundtrack of the game. You're putting sort of an interpretation of yeah. the soundtrack <laughs> of the game. And very and more and more often, you're running in circumstances when, for example, you listen to the Doom soundtracks and whatever they have uploaded them. And more than once, I think to myself like, eh, I could see this sort of <laughs> level of action and racing. Like there, there had to be a certain artistic intent, not even sometimes not even by the original artist, but someone else who had to sit yeah. down and sort of make an editorial decision to be like, okay, in order for this to work in a soundtrack, we're going to start with this, then it's going to race to this, then we're going to lower to this, and then we're going to race to here again. But that in itself yeah. is an interpretation of the music. So yeah. you're not really listening to the soundtrack of the game, you're listening to a very specific sort of editorialized process that it takes you through. And that can have the experience that I experience way too often of listening to a song and being like, okay, you know, that's not the, that's not what I have, will have chosen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a remix, but remix exactly. out of just all of the parts of the specific song, but you're choosing like, okay, at this point, you're arranging it like a song instead of what it was originally made for, which is as a gameplay experience and be like, okay, so here's where we go to the chorus. Here's where we go to the bridge or whatever. Even though obviously it wasn't written as a chorus and a bridge, you just have to sort of structure it as a song that people can listen to as a song outside of that which I think speaks a lot to, like you were saying, the idiosyncrasies of games as a medium, as a way of telling stories and a way of creating art. Because the big thing that games have that most other media don't is that level of interaction, is that level of unpredictability, where if you're writing a game soundtrack, if you're writing a film score, like you know exactly how long a piece of music is going to be playing, right? And you know what's going to be happening under it. You know where each event is going to be in line with each musical, I'm going to use the word event again because I can't think of another one, but each musical <laughs> event. And cue? Yeah, cue, sure. Uh, but in a game, you have almost no control over that outside of the cutscenes, which are basically mini movies and are their own separate world. But in the actual play of it, it's just so much more open-ended and everyone's experience is going to be different and it can't really be distilled in the same way that, I guess... I think of it like Let's Plays, right? Let's Plays are like a huge thing in games where people will make videos of them mm -hmm. playing through a game and you can watch like dozens of Let's Plays of the same game and get different experiences. But you can't really do the same thing with like a Let's Play of the Lord of the Rings movies. Because yeah. every one of those, they're just going, you, you, you can do a React, I guess, but that's, that's not, the, so you're not a part of someone's experience. You're commenting on the experience. Exactly. And sort of, this is a very modern challenge yeah. for this artistic medium. And it's something that very clearly they haven't figured out <laughs> to the point that for famously, for example, the OS rearrangement for the final release of the Doom Eternal soundtrack, I think relationships between the publisher and the original composer broke down and someone else had to do it. And it was famously oh, wow. not, not very good. <laughs> so like it's it becomes, in fact, I believe the relationship between the composer and the company broke down because he did an excellent job in the game, but then they have like contractual requirements for him to deliver arranged versions for the soundtrack, which yeah. was going to be like part of the special edition of the game or something. They didn't originally deliver in time, and when he finally delivered, it was not very good. It was actually lazy, I think is what the developers <laughs> called it. And wow, okay, so that <laughs> I don't think I have ever heard before of, of a sort of... A, yeah. 
uh, an issue between sort of an artist and the medium that they're publishing where it's like, oh, they, they just didn't have the time or the willingness to do a good job to readapting them outside our game to a, a, like a static soundtrack. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting because like it's fundamentally kind of obviously like he'll still have the stems and still have like these key themes and stuff like that. But it is a fundamentally completely different exercise in songwriting in kind of like the prompt of putting this to a soundtrack someone can listen to on Spotify as compared to the kind of ethereal like bits drifting in and out. It's something where like I can't even imagine what it would be to be a composer and have to put that together because they're such different things at their core. Yeah, this is exactly sort of a thing we talked about Back in the episode where we had Laura Crone on about film music, where game music is not the same thing as what we might call absolute music. It's not designed to be experienced on its own. It's not experienced on its own. It's You don't just sit down and put on an album. You experience it as part of a larger work. And so often decisions that are made to make game music as effective as possible in that role make it not necessarily a particularly effective piece of just sit back and relax music. And so sort of take one and transition it to the other, you have to rethink not just the structure or whatever, but the actual purpose of the composition. It's effectively, like I said, a remix or a reinvention. Yeah, exactly. It's it's extremely tricky. And as time goes on, one of the things that has been more fascinating to watch is that this used to be something in the realm of very expensive, very big AAA yeah. games. And yet more and more you see small teams. Uh, there was a game that came out somewhat recently that I absolutely adored called, I think, Death's Door. And it was made by a very small indie team. And the boss fights also had a dynamic sound system. There's a particularly memorable boss fight that uh, that sort of plays a lot with the system. And a lot of the attacks are like timed to a specific music cue. So you're actually listening to the music to trying to figure out like what direction or, or sort of the timing of your dodges and stuff. Oh, whoa. Yeah. That's, that's really cool conceptually. Like almost mixing like an action game and a rhythm game. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And... Like, how do you do a soundtrack like that? Like, the original composer of that put all the songs for free in YouTube, and I have listened to it, like, a million times already. But this <laughs> song, for example, for that specific boss fight, like, it's never the same. <laughs> and it's very, it's already difficult for a studio working with a multi-million dollar budget. How is, like, an, a, a three-people indie team supposed to even tackle that? Like, wow. And yet, it's something that eventually has seems to have to be figured out at some point in order for sort of game music because to just continue existing as a medium. Because how do you preserve that? Like if you tell someone, oh, wow, one of the best musics in games of all time, like you can go back and listen to NES soundtracks and have an appreciation of how they worked with their limited sort of resources, even without playing the game. But we're sort of crossing a threshold where if game preservation is already in a very sort of weird place, so if you cannot access the game at all, it's like you cannot even really appreciate the music <laughs> either. It's like one other aspect that is just lost to time. And that is crazy for me to think. So then do you think, I mean, obviously we're just three YouTubers. We're not going to solve this big problem, but like... No, we got this. <laughs> Between the three of us, if we put our heads together, I believe in us. Yeah, yeah. But like, what are the possible solutions to this? Because I mean, I... 
don't really know enough about either composing music or programming video games to think of some kind of comfortable middle ground for this. It really seems to be a problem without an obvious solution, at least. Honestly, what I think will be maybe not the ideal thing, but changing music from a static experience where you press play and you listen might be something doable for this sort of thing. Like every time I have to confront one of the soundtracks, I kind of wish like I had a player where I had a little bit more control about sort of like having, I don't know, four buttons and being like, oh, it's just a good face or the bad face or whatever. And in the lack of that, I will absolutely love if all the different stems and different parts of all these compositions were available because if we had like 10 different people making their own, that will be, I, I guess I will count as a remix, but isn't yeah. actually a remix. You're just reinterpreting how things enter like, and sort of a different flow of a combat, for example, that someone else will do. And then you could find the version of the song that fits <laughs> better what you remember and what you actually want to feel from that. Of course, yeah. you know, asking a big company to release all chunks of their music for people to play around with, like, <laughs> you're <laughs> really ask, not yeah. going to happen. But that, that to me will be a way more interesting, like giving more people the ability to be the middleman in yeah. interpreting how to turn that into a soundtrack rather than just having one guy in the studio who might have just landed on the job by accident just mm-hmm. trying desperately to make the decision because the freaking special edition has to include a soundtrack. Yeah, because because in, in a way, when you are a player playing the game, in a way, that's exactly what you're doing with these sorts of games. It's just you've kind of got this outside kind of stimulus of the game mechanics kind of pushing you into certain directions. But you are very much almost creating the soundtrack of these as you play. Yes. Yeah, no, you're a very active participant. And as a possible middle ground, and again, this is one of those things where would probably be a lot of work for people who wouldn't make a lot of money off of it. So it would be (laughs) unsurprised to not see this. But one thing that could be really interesting if they they didn't want to release all the stems would be to create effectively a dashboard where you can play the thing, it starts with the basic level, and then there's a button that's just like go into combat. And you can choose that whenever you want, and it'll make all the adjustments. So you're not getting to play at the stem level and getting to take like, oh, I want to just do the drum track here or whatever but you can sort of cycle through and craft a gameplay narrative effectively without having to play the game. I do also think in terms of the question of what the solution is, it also depends what the problem is. And I think (laughs) at some level, the problem here is game preservation, is the issue of like, what do we do with the music if we can't play the game anymore? And one option for that, and obviously this is a very complicated problem and I'm not like pretending that this would be easy to solve, but if it was easier to continue playing the original than that the lack of access to the music in that context sort of disappears. Yeah, I guess it is twofold. On one side, there is a question of how people who hasn't experienced the game can experience its music. Yeah. And on the other, it's sort of giving an experience to people who did experience the game that is actually more satisfactory to what either they expected yeah. or where they remember. So to, to put like a very specific example... There are certain boss fights in in games with dynamic music that are just etched into my brain because <laughs> the, the the fights that I always remember the most are the ones that I really thought I was not going to pull off. Where yeah. in a desperate struggle, I finally finish it with like my l- last 
tiny <laughs> sliver of health after hours of attempts. And the music sort of shifts from the very strong tension that you are about to die to the resolution of the fight is over. Wow, that's like being yeah. on drugs. Like that's such <laughs> a strong feeling. And every time I then go and listen to the soundtrack of that boss fight, I'm like, eh, like I kind of yeah. wish at the end it had that very strong struggle and then end of the fight because it will be more accurate to just like how, why that fight became memorable yeah. to me. And that's a tiny example. Maybe someone else remembers a fight for a different reason. I think there's something in the composition of the music of that as well. Cause I know in times where I've been, like you said, struggling in a boss fight, I think that's a great example. Hearing the same thing over and over can like build that tension. And like, there's a lot of songs that kind of play into that and take something and repeat it over and over until you're sick of it and then get that catharsis. But with this boss battle, that can be like hours, like yeah. you said, right? <laughs> and and that's a very different kind of cathartic relief when finally the theme resolves <laughs> or it changes. And honestly, even just like describing that, I can feel like the physically within myself, that moment of relief and relaxation and triumph. That's something that, yeah, you would never really get because like, Nobody would actually put on three hours of building to the same tension. <laughs> but at the same time, when, you've, well, when you're playing you the game... Have you seen some of the 10 hours of this yeah, thing YouTube videos that's, before? <laughs> that's true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible to perfectly replicate, of course. But I think... I kind of wish I at least have the options. But all of this, this is a very, very new thing for the medium. And something that everyone is is sort of struggling to to figure out how to do outside of video games and it's just so idiosyncratic of video games yeah. that it's uh, difficult to translate to anything else yeah if i relate to, to the point that noah was making like so much of the experience of, of that music is tied into the game experience that you wouldn't replicate with the music without the game like you you could listen to the same beginning of a soundtrack over and over for three hours just to hear how it ends, just to finally let it yeah. play. But you wouldn't. Whereas in a game, it becomes a part of the challenge and it becomes a part of that boss fight in the same way that, you know, the, the animation at the start when the boss appears is like you you get sick of that, but you're like, it also gives you a sense of like, okay, let's do this. Now I'm going to get it this time. And that, you know, and, and as soon as you don't have the backdrop of like, I am trying to fight this boss, I that experience feels to me almost impossible to actually replicate. And so there's an extent to which, like, and this is not to say that I disagree with you that this stuff should be more available, that it would be cool to have a lot of this stuff be more play withable. But there's an extent to which, just because of the nature of game music, it will lose part of that essence without the game part. It's not a separable entity entirely and that experience can't be recreated. And which which is again not not to say that I disagree that it would be cool to have more options and have more people playing around with them. I just think like again coming back to the idiosyncrasies of the medium you're sort of married to the medium, you know? Yeah. The boss fight thing especially like and I know this isn't exactly I don't this doesn't really have the dynamic music like you're talking about. But even in general, I'm having flashbacks talking about boss fights, repeating music because I've been playing Cuphead and uh, <laughs> and that yep. is entirely the experience of Cuphead. But it's so interesting because I really like 
uh, it probably isn't that shocking that I like the Cuphead soundtrack because it's all kind of like ragtime and jazz and stuff, which is my jam. But I like could not really envision myself sitting down and listening to the Cuphead soundtrack without, you know, like playing against one of those infuriating bosses. Like I couldn't really picture myself putting it on in the same way I could picture myself. Like I could I could listen to that friggin' like bass lick from Hades. I could listen to that <laughs> on repeat for three days. <laughs> there is a lot of music that is so tied to the event that it's either stressful to listen to it again or just <laughs> yep. not as good. I, I'm surprised how often I play a game I am like, wow, this music's amazing. And after I'm done with the game, I, ha- I have a parenthesis. I have a personal rule not to listen to game soundtracks until I'm done with the game. Because very often I will be listening to like a YouTube playlist and then a song will come up that I haven't listened to. And I look at the title and it's like a spoiler or something. Yeah. So it's good practice not to. But when I finally go and listen to the whole soundtrack of the game I have been playing, uh, very often it's like, oh, this isn't this isn't good as own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like a lot of games that I think of as having good music and what they have in reality is very serviceable yeah. unintrusive music which exactly, is which is yeah. important which which is very good for what they're trying to do and but but it doesn't it's not as as much like it doesn't translate like I think the example that always comes to mind for me is Broken Vessel from Hollow Knight. Like, if you've played Hollow Knight, yeah. you know that track. It's an absolute banger. I would listen to that for days. but And, and you can take it out perfectly. But then there's, there's all sorts of other tracks. Not, not so much on Hollow Knight. Hollow Knight has a lot of really good tracks. But there's a lot of games where if you just pull up the soundtrack and listen to it by itself, it's fine. But like the, this, And this is one of the things, like, I, I get a lot of people asking me, for advice on writing game music, which is weird because 8-bit music theory exists and you should just ask him. That's his whole thing. But people ask me for some reason and I have some experience with it, a, a little bit, not like professionally, but I did do like a couple things for like a game demo that a friend of mine was making a couple years ago. So I, I've tried it. And the advice I always give is like, however long your loop is, make it longer and add more distinct sections. <laughs> like... It will almost never make your song worse. And again, you have players who will be playing through this for hours. And you want you want that experience to still be enjoyable hours in. Like I watch one of the things I, I watch often on YouTube is uh, GDQ, speedrunning stuff. And one of the like most consistent pieces of advice they give for people looking to get into speedrunning is pick a game where you really like the first level's music. Because you are going to be <laughs> listening to that for so long. And that sort of thing, I forget why I started that, but the point is that there's nothing wrong with serviceable music. There's nothing wrong with music that just sits in the background and doesn't get in the way, but it it doesn't necessarily translate out into being like a separable great song that you would enjoy listening to on its own. Yes, definitely something that you sort of run into there that I think is super interesting is that very often game music that is very good game music is not necessarily yeah. good soundtrack music, mostly because it, when you have examples like some of the ones that I mentioned before that both make a very good soundtrack music on its own and very good like music when you're in-game, that's threading a very difficult yeah. needle. 
Like that's extremely difficult because another sort of idiosyncrasy of a medium is sort of that if you're making music for a movie or a show, you expect maybe people who really like it a lot to watch two, three, maybe four times. Yeah. But if you have a basic loop for a game, like going on Overworld or something, people are going to be listening to that for 80 hours. <laughs> and how how the, in the world do you write a song that you're yeah. not sick of after that long? Like that's, um, it's... It's a, tr- it's a real <laughs> challenge, and I don't know how they yeah. pull that off, to be honest. I used to play a lot of Heroes of the Storm, which is Blizzard's Oof. Dota ripoff. And <laughs> it, which, to be fair, I, I like it better than Dota, although I don't play it anymore. I got sick of it. But like I've easily logged hundreds of hours on that game, possibly over a thousand. And they have quite a lot of music in it. But at playing it that long, you just, you learn all of the music, you learn all of the cues. And whenever it builds up to the thing, you can just like sing along with it. And it just, it becomes, it becomes a part of the experience, but it also like, like you said, really has to be something you can keep enjoying that long in and that you won't get sick of. And I think a lot of that, like one of the problems that I think some game music runs into that I've seen is being really gimmicky. And like you have too much of the thing where you're supposed to hear and be like, oh, that's neat. And then, like, the 10th time, it's not as neat. And, like, the 100th time, <laughs> it's even less neat. And it, but just things that are... So a lot of this tends... A lot of really successful game music, for me, tends to hew closer to, like, classic... Not necessarily classical, but classically interesting sound. Sounds that just... Again, aren't, aren't like, super intrusive, aren't necessarily even, like, super innovative, but are just things that have a long history of working in their particular genres, whether that be classical, rock, whatever, and just doing that effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, kind of probably the prototypical example of that is Minecraft score by uh, <laughs> with C418. Like, yeah. it's just it's just beautiful ambient music, and it's it's something where, like, anytime I listen to it, I really am, like, translated to that that feeling of like playing Minecraft for the first time, which I think is, there's something very magical about the way that that can transport you to just like walking around punching trees, (laughs) you know, like, like I I think, I think it's a perfect piece of very simple, easily, easily repeatable, just really beautiful music. And ambient music in general is, I think, often a really effective choice, especially for lower key moments like overworld themes and things like that, because there's not really, ambient music isn't supposed to be taking you anywhere. So you don't feel like you're on this treadmill. And so it's not as obvious when it repeats and you can do sort of less in that space without really feeling like you're not doing enough. Uh, The example when you mention ambient music that comes to mind for me is Steven Sausage Roll. I don't know if either of you have played that. Uh, No. If not, highly recommend. It's possibly my favorite. It's my favorite puzzle game, certainly. But it, it's extremely interesting puzzle game. And the score is, like, really weird, but not in a way that is super noticeable until you start listening to it. And so you can sort of tune in and be like, okay, something cool is happening. But you can also sort of tune it out and focus on the gameplay really easily. And, like, the opening, the, the menu thing, when you load the game the music cues respond to your button presses, which is interesting. Oh, I love when they do that. It's 
I, I highly recommend that game for a lot of reasons, including the score, but not primarily the score. It's just a great game, but the score is also really good and interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of different schools of thought of just how you do this in games and when they, they clash, interesting things happen. While, while you were talking about ambience music, sort of the example that came to mind for me was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Oh, Mostly yeah. because the soundscape of that game was a huge departure in terms of how Zelda games used to do things. And yeah. I remember that when it came out, it was hugely controversial because of a lot of people were disappointed in not having sort of a, a more familiar yeah. type of heroic Zelda landscape rather than this more very subdued sort of uh, piano. And to their credit, it works really well. And it was that that game is, I will say, particularly larger than previous Zelda games in terms of you were going to spend way, way, way more time in the yeah. overworld and exploring nooks and crannies compared to any other past Zelda games. So they, they had a challenge on their hands of particularly yeah. how like any, any, any Zelda overworld theme of the past will not have stand up to that level of scrutiny. And they the response to this was very unusual. And yet it worked. And it's also uh, in, in this sort of new scheme that we're using to, to measure how these things work. It's also a soundtrack that works very well on its own. I have listened to it many, many, many times while working. And it, it stands on, it stands completely on its own. I think something about the Breath of the Wild score that's really interesting as well is the way that it, like, because like Koji Kondo's original Legend of Zelda fanfare theme is like so iconic and it plays on that within the theme, like like it brings it in 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 some of these moments in a way that I think kind of like it relies on the audience understanding or maybe not relies on, but it's it's made better by the audience understanding and recognizing that iconic fanfare. Yeah. And then kind of like almost in a way that's almost like a cover song, you know, where it's like, you know, and you hear this theme so well and then you hear it kind of coming back in this very calm, open, ambient piano way. And it's really just like, it, it really just like knocks the breath out of you. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> so that that game it specifically is interesting to dig into the soundtrack a little bit because there's a lot of intent on, on what they were trying to do. Zelda games in general tend to have a very a specific type of vibe. Yeah. And it's always like very heroic, very sort of a coming of age story of a, of a hero overcoming difficulty. But Breath of the Wild stand apart from most Zelda games in that it's emotionally more about like melancholy, about what, what what's already has been lost. And so a lot of the music, like that, that example, Noah, that you were putting in, like when the original Legend of Zelda theme shows up in that game, it's very subdued, almost yeah. like a like a, like a ghost, like a memory, like yeah. when you are thinking of something that happened but it's lost. And it for the emotional tone that game's going for, it works really, really well. <laughs> yeah, I think the Zelda franchise in general does some really interesting stuff with music. I mean, for for starters, there's just like the Zelda game that's entirely based around you having an instrument. Multiple Zelda games that have yeah. that, in fact, and that's unusual for most adventure franchises. But also like the, the one that always uh, sticks out for me is, and I'm, I'm sure you already know about this, but in case anyone listening doesn't, what is it, the Skyward Sword, I believe, the goddess theme? 
Is Zelda's yes. lullaby backwards? Zelda, Zelda games do these things all the time, and yeah. I'm never sure how they pull it off. They're so it's so cool, and it sounds completely different, and it totally works. And like you don't notice it until like someone sits you down and like shows you or plays it backwards, and you're like, wait a second, that's the that's the thing, that's the thing from the other thing. I mean, there's like very very real arguments for like. Koji Kondo as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, and probably the most widely listened to composer of our age, right? Yeah. This argument's him, uh, Uematsu as well, is also yes. up there. But. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the things that Koji Kondo and his team have tried over the years, it's very, it's very has it's fascinating to see just as technology catches up to yeah. what they want. They can refine what they're doing closer and closer to what whatever original intent there was there. And as I was talking about sort of the, the the Breath of the Wild example, I think the the other game that has a way, way more rudimentary system in terms of music, but it still has a system, is Majora's Mask, which is also yeah. a game that is very, very moody. Like it has a very specific vibe yeah. that it wants to give you constantly. Extremely and one of the game. things yeah. One of always my my favorite things about that game is sort of how the the theme of the central town where you spend a lot of your time is it it grows more desperate quicker yeah. and darker as time goes on as as it's, as it's most and most obvious that the world is about to end and yeah. that's them playing with those systems because like even I remember even before before then it it was like if you had a game that had a day and night cycle and you had some music at day and some music at night it was already uh, something that you would go like ooh yeah. neat the things they're doing with <laughs> technology Exactly. And then they will come with this like, no, oh yeah, the music grows increasingly desperate as time goes on. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, because one of the things that defined early video game music was, like you said, all these restrictions. Like you had, I think it was four channels that you could use. One of them was just a noise channel for percussion and then like three melodic channels and that was it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so you had to really think about themes and motifs and like counterpoint because you didn't have really any other tools. And so a lot of these really old video game franchises like Mario, like Zelda are built, their music is built on these super powerful, really good themes because there were no other options. There was no other way to make a good video game soundtrack besides just having a banger motif. And so from there now, when you take a really good, really interesting motif and bring that into modern technological spaces where you can do pretty much whatever you want. Like at this point, even like like VSTs, like fake instruments are so good that in a lot of cases you can't tell whether it's a real yeah. recorded violin oh or whether it's like a program thing. And... So you have that level of control and that level of specificity. And obviously you can work with a real orchestra too if, you're, if you have like AAA budgets. And so you have all of these options, but you already have such a great starting point because you had to start with such an amazing theme in the beginning. Yes, I, I think there's not enough is said at how sort of some of the tools that you mentioned have enabled smaller game creators through the yeah. years. Going back all the way to the start, if there, there's a great, very long documentary about the making of Hades in the YouTube channel Noclip uh, yeah. that they did as the game was being developed. 
And there's, I can't remember which one, but there's an episode where they go into like the one guy who did most of the music and just playing some instruments himself and just feeling the rest with whatever he could generate. And you listen to that game without having watched that and you could swear that there's yeah. like a, a huge band and this way more complex number yeah. of musicians doing all yeah. these things. So it's like, nope, it's just, it's, it's a trick of technology. And the mere fact that that is possible is outstanding. It's mind blowing. I'm trying to remember if it was Hades or Hollow Knight, but it was one of those two games. I remember watching the credits and getting to the music section and seeing that like the only like instrument credit was like one dude on a viola. <laughs> yeah, <that was> <laughs> just, I, I, I was watching that. I was like, "Are you sure? Are you sure there wasn't like a hundred-person orchestra behind this?" But that, I mean, also yeah. speaking to like helping indie developers and smaller developers, that's one of the things I find fascinating about like chiptune music and also pixel art. I think pixel art is fascinating for similar reasons because these days none of that is necessary technologically. We have so many pixels on a screen. There's no reason for me to be able to see the squares. But it's an aesthetic, it's a vibe, and it has a specific impact, and it feels gamey in a way. It feels like it's a video game if you're seeing the pixels and if you're hearing those like chiptune, like square wave things in ways that serve as almost like a shortcut or like a free tool for people who don't necessarily have the budget to work with major orchestras or the like technical skill to do uh, technical skills, the wrong word, but have the capacity for budgetary or time reasons to really do those really specific grand VST soundtracks. You, you can just do chiptune and it'll sound great because people know chiptune is game music. I think another aspect of that too, though, that another great thing about chiptune and part of kind of I think this is part of the reason why why Koji Kondo's early scores are so good is just the way that limitation forces creativity, yeah. right? And I think that's that's true of pixel art as well, where like a lot of the most incredible kind of like most distinctive art styles are things that are pixel art and a lot of the most distinctive music like that being forced into this limitation a lot of the time can make you, yeah. it, it, it makes you get uncomfortable and it makes you, you know, have to be cutthroat with your decisions and stuff like that. And a lot of the time, and again, I don't think everything should be chiptune, but for all of the kind of freedom that you have these days, putting yourself into boxes a lot of the time can force you to create stuff that you you wouldn't have done. Like, I think that any of Kondo's early tunes would not have sounded the same if he had access to a full orchestra, right? Yeah. Oh, God, no. Yeah, that that actually brings a question that I, that I actually have for you both, which is the, it's one of the fascinating aspects of, of chiptune music and both, well, that and pixel art is that when you read interviews or, or talk to people who did music during those days, the frustration, to them, the limitations of the system were frustrations. In the, yeah. They had to work around them. They were trying to imagine something more grandiose and they had to work within what they actually had limited. Yeah. However, just look, go forward 20 <laughs> years into the future and some, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be friends with some cheap tune artists. And the one thing that I'm always fascinated about is how they buy 
very old original Game Boys and they retrofit them in order to get like a decent audio output out of them. Yeah. Because, you know, you can do it on a laptop, but it doesn't sound like perfectly genuine <laughs> unless you're going through yeah. like a, a, yeah. a Game Boy chip. And for a lot of people that work in those days, that is a, like, like a hair pulling experience of why like technology has moved on. Why are you setting yourself <laughs> those limitations? But that's because, well, after 20 years, that's no not yeah. a limitation. That's an aesthetic. It's a choice. And you're sort of trying to go with that specific aesthetic. And yeah. the same happens with pixel art. Pixel art isn't like a, a thing that happens. Not even like, I, I know it can be a uh, sometimes more budget conscious to do pixel art, but there are games out there like Blasphemous, which I'm always going to promote because it's a shiny example of what the Spanish gaming industry can do, which have such extraordinarily complex pixel art that is not cheap to produce. No. And it's like, uh, it's an artistic decision to go to the aesthetic I, rather than a, than a cost-saving measure. <laughs> and yeah. it, does that, my question, getting there finally, to both of you is, is this something that commonly happens in music? That people look yes. back at something yeah. that was like a limitation and becomes an aesthetic choice? All of the time. Yeah. Uh, a vinyl um, records yeah. crackle. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people will play vintage guitars are kind of like valued more and people will seek out like John Frusciante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers plays exclusively vintage guitars something something about a lot of older things is that there's a kind of like flaw and a lot of these things had kind of their own individual sounds because the production lines weren't able to create things quite as uniform. Yeah. It's really common with guitarists and pedals as well. Like old yeah. like old guitar pedals are very like the thing is uh, I was just talking about this in one of my recent uh videos with Hendrix where like <laughs> when the pedals that Hendrix used were the reason he used them at the time was they were the cheapest um and <laughs> But he would sometimes have to buy like 20 of them to find one with a sound that he liked. Whereas nowadays, if you buy 20 of the same pedal, all of them are going to sound the same because they're created in such sterile conditions and things like that. So it's yeah. definitely something where uh, in music all of the time, people really love a, it's it's not just it's not necessarily just limitations. It's also just like flawed things, you know, technology yeah. that is flawed from the past and there's even people like like jack white is another example where jack white records a lot of stuff on like analog technology even though there's state-of-the-art digital recording and stuff like that it's really really common in music i think yeah i was i was gonna like interject with the hendrix fuzz face story and then i was trying yeah. to remember where i'd heard it <laughs> and then i remember i'd heard it in your video so i was like okay i'll just let noah keep going but i think like <laughs> In addition to sort of things being imperfect and there being more variation, another important thing in terms of why chiptune is interesting now in ways it might not have been to the people making it is just that cultural context. Yeah. Like when the NES came out, when the original Game Boy came out, when all these like really old systems came out, there this was not a sound. This was a thing they had to try and get sound out of. But again, 20, 30 years later, that's the sound of games, that of these old games that we love. That's what they feel like. That's when you go back and play like Mega Man or whatever, that's what that music is. And so you have those associations with it. 
And so it creates this aesthetic through that nostalgic cultural connection rather than just when you're inventing it, you're just frustrated that you can't do more. Like if you go back to like really early synthesizers, I know like Wendy Carlos has talked about like switched on Bach. She had problems of like trying to, because the synthesizer she was working with couldn't play more than one note at a time. And so she had to record all of these individual parts and then layer them on top of each other instead of just playing it like a piano. And that was this huge, like arduous experience for her. But now like analog synthesis is so not necessary that it becomes, like I said, an aesthetic, a, like a cultural callback to a thing that was used to be a limitation and now, like you said, is a vibe. Yeah, it's fascinating because a lot of the nostalgia is inherited in the sense that there's a lot of people in the chip to yeah. music scene who were not alive when <laughs> these consoles were out. Oh yeah. So it's it's more like the inherited association with old games rather than remembering your own childhood. Yeah. And and that to me is it's it's interesting that it happens in music so often because maybe for a lot of these instruments you can say like, oh, you know, scientifically this has a more complete and more reproducible sound, but you know. Art is yeah. going to be art, so it's going to be like, oh, you know, I prefer how the flawed <laughs> old ones sound. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with any music and any art and anything, is every taste is subjective and it's culturally informed. And so you you learn, like, one of my favorite examples is when I try and talk about, like, what how we define rock music, I will so often hear people be like, yeah, rock music has electric guitar. And... That's not a sufficient definition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But you just, you have these associations and those are carried through from the days of like Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley. And like, even before that, people like Sister, Sister Rosetta, Rosetta Tharp. Tharp. Yeah. 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 I, I was getting there. <laughs> no, totally fair though. Like really, I actually recently watched a, a video about her, like just completely off topic, but a dude I know has been making a podcast about under talked about figures in music history for children. And oh, cool. it's really cool. And that sounds really he's made cool. a couple of videos about it. So anyway, not super relevant to this point, but why music? Highly recommend. And but anyway, back to the point. Like we have these associations, not because like the attitudes of rock or the the imagery of rock needs an electric guitar, but because the first people we think of as like the oldest rock musicians played electric guitar. And so then the people after them played electric guitar and the people after them played electric guitar. Yeah. And it just became a part of the mechanics of the aesthetic without necessarily being a necessary component of the aesthetic itself. And in the same way, you look at chiptune and chiptune is just a set of technological restrictions. That's all it is. But those technological restrictions have cultural connotations now. And so when you look at new things, you'll see people, again, like you were talking about, people who weren't alive when the original Game Boys came out, who now think of this as what game music or like old game music at least sounds like because it's been carried through by other people who loved those songs and carried them through and started doing their own things with them. I think another comparison to music right now is the whole kind of like lo-fi hip hop thing with yeah. artificial vinyl crackle and stuff like that being made by, or at, at the very least being listened to a lot 
by people who very much did not grow up in the days <laughs> of records. And I'm sure a lot of them like collect records and stuff now. But I mean, like I, I love records, but growing up, I did not spend a lot of time listening to records. Like most of my youth was spent in the CD age, but there's, there is something. And, and whereas like, a generation ago, my parents would have been pissed if their record was starting to like crackle, similar yeah. to how composers were frustrated that chiptune was the limitation that they had. <laughs> now you've got people seeking that out because, uh, l- like Corey's been saying, it's taken a new cultural context. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And I, uh, I'm, I can't help but wonder what are the limitations that we have right now that we're not aware yeah. of? that the generations of the future are going to be like, ooh, cool aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've actually wondered, uh, I've been wondering th- about this a lot lately. I've wondered if a generation onwards, like l- like 480p blocking is going to be something that is <laughs> like, because I hate it, I can't stand I it. it. But, but I mean, there is like already like data moshing and stuff like that is an aesthetic that's used a lot. Yeah. So I, I would not be surprised if in like, if in 10 years, if you've got YouTubers or something akin to us, you know, uploading stuff in 480p as an aesthetic or doing like faux 480p blocking. <laughs> Just getting a 480p effect for Premiere. Yeah, to yeah, run exactly. Under 8K footage. Yeah, exactly. I do this all the time in my <laughs> videos, right? Like, I, oh I'm always adding uh. like. Fill, uh, I'm always adding like film grain textures and stuff yeah. like that, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's basically the exact same thing. See, my trick is just to start with bad footage in the first place. <laughs> I want, <laughs> I, I think you should convert to 480p, Corey. You, you should set the trend. <laughs> Being ahead of the curve. Yeah. yeah. I bet your diagrams will be so clear and understandable so in 480. So yeah. legible. <laughs> oh my God. I go through the trouble of filming and editing in 4K using RAW. And it's yeah. like a, a, a few years from now, it's going to be like, oh God, no, what, what yeah. you're doing? That's, it's- that's way too clean. You got to stick to an aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, just pivot to pixel art, Alex. Oh God. It's almost like a, a video game designer going into a lot of effort to make graphics and stuff looking good and some maniac tearing them apart and running them <laughs> on the lowest <laughs> specs possible. Okay, point taken. <laughs> oh, oh God! Do you have any any anything else you want to kind of like bring up in this, or or do you think that's a good no. place to start to wrap up? That's a, that's a brilliant place to wrap to start wrapping up <laughs> on on the um just on the topic of video game scores in general. I want to give a quick shout out to one of my best friends on YouTube, Game Score Fanfare, because Corey's yeah. shouted out Twelve Bit Music yeah. Theory a few times. Game Score uh, Fanfare, music theory. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. You know, Twelve Tone. It's that's yeah. that's your like combined Voltron form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Twelve Bit is just the NES and a half. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, for uh, if you want more discussions on video game music, you should check out GameScore Fanfare because yeah. Mido's really cool. Perfect for sure. I haven't followed him for a while. Thank you for reminding me. Oh no problem. And clicked. <laughs> and if people want to find you, Alex, where can they find you? Well, they can find me at Gamer on YouTube. They can find me, if they prefer their videos in Spanish, they can find me in Gamer en Español, also in YouTube. 
you can find me in Low Spec Gamer in Nebula, and I will maybe Low Spec Gamer on Instagram, and I will maybe say Low Spec Gamer on Twitter, but not a day passes that I don't think of deleting that, so I'm not sure if I want to promote <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> you've also Twitter's got a, terrible. Don't do Twitter. You've also got a podcast too, right? You should also, sh- yeah, shout out your podcast. I have a, a great podcast called Genesis, where I interview creators one-on-one to get their superhero origin stories. Yeah. And I will always say that you will never see our creators' content the same way again <laughs> after you have sort of heard through their entire life story. Yeah. Yeah, I was on that. That was a fun one. Yeah, I was going to say, there's great episodes with uh, these channels, Polyphonic and 12-Tone. You should really <laughs> check those out. <laughs> and as for Corey, they know they know where to find yeah, you, right? They, they know where we are. They've, they've, yeah. If you're listening to this podcast at this point, we're over a year in. You know how to find us. I'm in your closet right now. <laughs> Don't look under Go your check. bed. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great episode of Ghost Notes and Friends. And before we go, can I can we just do do a quick round of a game score that that we love that that people should check out? I want one of you to go first because I don't want to put myself on the spot here. <laughs> I mean, I've already mentioned some of like Hollow Knight and Hades. Celeste is also fantastic. Uh, FF10 for something slightly more classic. Those are sort of the four that I usually throw out when people ask favorite game soundtrack. I already mentioned Death's Door that I'm always happy to mention because I I feel that in the game requires even more appreciation than what it got. But I will also include the soundtrack for pretty much any Animal Crossing game because there's there's a beautiful art in making that level of chill, subdued music that just changes to the day. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I'll... I'll send us home by saying go listen to the soundtrack for Age of Empires 2 because it's (laughs) (laughs) Masterpiece. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. See ya. Bye.